Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What he wants us to cover is the smallest little sliver of the world. There's a bunch of other people in the room who have different vantage points that could be tapped. Hello and welcome to the Clan Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, before we begin today, in the Rutger Bregman episode, which uh, I hope you all enjoyed and, and I loved, we talked, or I talked actually, a bit about uh, an old sci-fi story that I thought had been written by Ursula Le Guin about patents and intellectual property in a post-abundance world and the way it could rob people of, of their search for meaning. And the story, like I remembered it from when I was a kid, but I did not, as a bunch of you pointed out, remember the author correctly. Story is by Spider Robinson, and it is called Melancholy Elephants. Um, and I'll put a link to it here in show notes. It's a beautiful short story, and it's worth taking the, taking the couple minutes to read. Um, but today, today, this is not the conversation I'd intended to have Um in this episode. It's one I, I kind of set up a little bit quickly because over the weekend, um, I I literally was up overnight thinking about this question of, are we just getting, are we in the media just getting how to cover this era wrong? And I was thinking about it in terms of the attacks Donald Trump has been launching on the squad, on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and Ayanna Presley. And in particular, the thing I, I, I keep turning over in my head is... We in the media operate under the idea that if Trump says something terrible and offensive that focuses the country on his racism, well, of course, that's newsworthy and that should be round the round, round the clock coverage, right? That should that should dominate the news. That's a big deal. And it's part of our effort to not normalize Donald Trump, right? To make sure that people know when he's saying something abnormal or terrible or flagrantly false. And yet, is it working? Is this actually a good incentive structure? Or by amplifying those debates and creating this sort of partisan rally around them, we're actually making it worse. We constantly focus people on the worst conversation we could be having. And even if we're doing it in a good way, even if we're trying to stand up and say this is wrong, if you're constantly amplifying the worst sentiments, at some level, you're just empowering them. Um, I don't have an answer here. Uh, I'm not saying it should be done totally different. I'm not saying I know how to do it differently. I try hard in this show to kind of center the critique on myself. Um, 
But, you know, this is something that I think all of us in the media struggle with. Uh, and it isn't to say we shouldn't be covering these things because on some level, of course, we should. But is in the choice made to constantly cover these things to the expense of other topics, people, ideas, policies, questions that could be covered, are we really having the effect we want? Are we informing people better? Are we leading to a healthier public dialogue? Are we setting up an incentive structure where the politicians and public actors like Donald Trump, who are willing to get attention no matter the cost, have this incentive now to just say terrible things to get that attention? Um, meanwhile, the people in politics who are acting honorably and trying to make things a little bit better every day and are playing by kind of the the, the rules such as they are, they get almost no coverage. <laughs> and the incentive is to not do what they're doing. So the person I, I knew I wanted to have this conversation with was Whitney Phillips, who is a professor of communication and rhetoric at Syracuse University, has done remarkable work on trolling and media amplification. Um, I have a past episode with her that you can go back and look at in the archives. I'll link to that in show notes too. Um, and, and she's somebody who's really helped me think about this from a very different perspective, from the perspective of amplification, the perspective of sunlight not always being disinfected, but sometimes sunlight is, of course, what makes things grow. So this is a, a kind of tough conversation. Um, it is not a conversation that I think comes to an easy answer, but I think it is one worth having and at least worth exploring the idea that our instincts of what to do in these situations are, are not the right instincts anymore. And if you want proof of it, well, you know, look around. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Whitney Phillips. Whitney Phillips, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me back on. So I'm going to start with a, just a bit of a f intention here, which I don't always do, but we've been emailing over the past couple of days, and I think that we we both agree that we don't have an answer to the problem we're about to talk about, and there may not even be any good answers here. So this is just going to be a processing conversation, um, and I and I appreciate you and and the audience all being here for it. I want to begin just with the idea of amplification as something the media does and something that we need to take seriously as a role. What 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 in your work is amplification? Well, so a few few months ago, was it a year ago? Who can even tell anymore? Um, I published this report, The Oxygen of Amplification, and it came about because I was having consistently these same conversations with journalists again and again and again when I would talk to them about problematic stuff that would happen. And we would it would start out as a normal interview where they would call me and talk to me about the latest horror. And then it would always devolve or evolve, maybe evolve is better, into a conversation about what it felt like for them as journalists to know that they were giving oxygen to often repugnant ideas and repugnant people. And after a series of these conversations that I was having with them, particularly after Charlottesville, I decided, you know, it, this was a good time to write a report that addressed the fact that reporting on something, however you do it, whether it's hypercritical or if it's just sort of a straight up news story, it it brings more attention to whatever it is you're talking about. And so a story that might have been relatively confined to a particular community or group of people, it then becomes transmitted across the entire country or globe by virtue of the fact that journalists are reporting on it. And one journalist who I ultimately ended up interviewing for this report summed it up as, 
you know, journalism is amplification. That is what journalism does. And so you can't really talk about one thing without the other um, in the context of journalism. And that just poses so many problems because so much attention is being directed to really damaging, dehumanizing things um, in the name of trying to solve those things. So it's kind of an impossible situation for journalists. I agree. And it's actually really shaped my thinking that one of the core things we do in the media is, is amplify. But something that you've written about is the idea that when we amplify, we do so under this metaphor of sunlight as the best disinfectant. If we decided to shine all of the country's attention on something particularly loathsome, the idea is that when we show people something loathsome, well, now that it's in the sun, it'll be wiped away, right? The mold will die under, under the bright light of the sun. And you make this argument that oftentimes sunlight makes things grow. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. Um, I mean, so in many cases, when you shine a light on something, um, it is going to serve as a disinfectant for a particular audience. And this is where things get really tricky because, you know, when you're talking about who's reading something, you have your intended audience and your unintended audience. So the intended audience might receive that information in exactly as it was intended. And they will realize that a particular statement is false or they will understand the, the damage of a particular ideology, something to that effect. But it's the unintended audiences who those ideas are not just not uh, disinfected, but those ideas become illuminated through the process of calling attention to something. So some audiences might respond in a in a positive way, in the way you intend. Other audiences could go in the opposite direction and take what you have published and turn it into a weapon against other groups of people. And so there's just this, the problem when people talk about that term, intuitively, it's correct, right? We need to call attention to racist things so that we know that racist things are bad. Well, that is only going to work for a certain percentage of the audience. And then even worse than that, if you're talking about your intended audience, you know that your audience, generally speaking, skews a particular political perspective, right? So let's say that you're the New York Times and you make some assumptions about who your intended audience are and what broadly their the range of their ideologies might be. Those are the last people who need to have those damaging ideologies illuminated to critique. They already know. And so if one audience already knows that something is bad, illuminating it, we can all have a conversation where we agree something is a problem, but then it has all these unintended effects of making it that much worse, calling more attention to other groups who are going to do something with that information that we didn't intend at all. So it's it either is kind of good, sometimes good, sort of neutral, or very bad, and often all at the same time. Well, one of the things that I've been thinking about, uh, particularly with Donald Trump over the past couple of weeks, is that one of the dynamics when we permit him or serve maybe even more directly as his accomplices in making the national conversation, is this racist thing, Donald Trump said a racist thing, is we merge racism and partisanship in, I think, a particularly toxic way. So all of a sudden, Republicans who like Donald Trump, and even though they don't really like Donald Trump, they have their interests tied up with Donald Trump, need to rally around to his side. And so you have, I don't know, Kellyanne Conway going out and wheeling on a Jewish reporter and saying, well, what's your ethnicity? Right. Mm -hmm. To show like nothing, nothing racist about doing that. Nothing, nothing problematic there at all. And it, it goes all down the line. Right. You get these like complicated debates about, you know, well, was Don was the crowd just chanting send her home or was Donald Trump luxuriating in it? And 
it creates an incentive for a lot of people to try to say, no, this guy I like, Donald Trump, he can't be racist. So if you're saying this is racist, well, either we have to draw the line of racism even higher, um, you know, the the endless effort in, in American politics to make racism only people wearing like a white hood and burning a cross on somebody's lawn. But also we create this dynamic where there's a rally around your leader effect. And a lot of people have to say, you know what? Yeah, like may- maybe I agree with that too. There's a funny thing with liberals, I think, in particular, where we have this view that there's a lot of racism in the country. And then also this view that if we just tell people Donald Trump is racist enough times, people will not like it. And if you believe that there are a lot of racist views held by a lot of people, well, then constantly priming those views, I worry, just has the effect of saying to those folks, yeah, it's okay to feel that way. You have a lot of allies here. You have powerful allies here. You have friends. Like you can you can let this out. You don't have to worry about this feeling of yours. And that kind of amplification, I think we assume it's going to be a disinfectant, but it, it ends up letting things grow. It ends up emboldening them. It, that's true. And the other thing that happens with that sort of coverage is that you have not just racism merging with partisanship, but you have racism merging with structural white supremacy, right? So not the kind of white supremacy that, uh, you know, a person wearing a hood would wear, but structural white white supremacy where white people are sort of exalted at the central position. They're, they're sort of universalized. And so, you know, in response to Trump's racist tweets last week, you know, especially on the left, um, you know, and not just on the left, of course, but the kind of um, breathless denunciation of that coverage and showing the the clip of the crowd chanting over and over and inviting one after the other of sort of white talking heads to talk about the about the message right it kind of reinforces the underlying argument that he's making that places white people central to the cultural conversation. And so then that gets to the problem of representation and diversity within the the news industry to begin with, where, you know, by repeating what Trump says over and over and over, you kind of validate it because it's worth taking seriously. That's what the coverage reveals. But then the coverage itself so frequently centers on white perspectives on that racism, images of all the white people chanting those things at that rally over and over and over. And so you risk replicating totally inadvertently, but replicating the white nationalist slash supremacist um, elements of that kind of those kinds of statements. And I think that that's the really insidious element of this where People are not intending to replicate those sorts of sentiments, but sometimes that's what happens. And so you end up illuminating that. You end up normalizing that totally unintentionally. And I think that that's extremely dangerous. But let me take the traditional journalism side of this argument. And and I want to say here, I am not criticizing my colleagues in this. Um, If I'm criticizing anybody, it is myself as much as anyone. I don't think we have a good answer and I don't think we're in a good position. So I want to say that as soon as this rally happened, or actually you can give a better example, a couple days before Donald Trump was at a press conference and it was this Made in America showcase conference. And if you look at the transcript of it, it goes for like 5,000 plus words and he talks about manufacturing policy and his trade deal and China and immigration and African-American unemployment. And I mean, it's a it's a big discursive Donald Trump rambling thing. But then he gets asked about his comments about the squad. And somebody says to him, a reporter says to him, don't you worry that people are criticizing these as racist? And Donald Trump says, no, because many people agree with me. 
And I, on Twitter, immediately pulled that out and said, aha, right, here is Donald Trump's whole career in one exchange. And I got, you know, whatever, 10,000 likes and retweets, and it was a viral tweet. And I didn't look at, I didn't pay attention really to anything else he said there. So clearly I am working off of the definition of newsworthy here that, uh, that, that we all are, because if the president is saying racist things and if he's justifying them by saying, well, a lot of other people agree with them, I mean, surely that's newsworthy. There, there is some traditional rubric of journalism where there isn't even a choice here. Of course, you have to show what happened at the rally, the chanting at the rally, because that is a newsworthy event you are covering. So, I mean, what's the answer to that? What space does that even leave you? What's I mean, that's that's an interesting example because it that kind of approach, even though it kind of grows out of journalism, that's a of course, it's newsworthy in the journalistic sense. But what that newsworthiness does is it actually shuts down bigger conversations. It's almost like newsworthiness is limiting as a as a framework because then you're focusing on that one statement. And like you said, there was lots of other stuff that happened in that speech. Um, you know, and what we miss, I think, is the meta element of that conversation. So why is it that people um you included and lots of other people, that was the moment that really got the most play on that particular day. What causes those moments to be the moments that float to the top of our collective consciousness? What is it about our overall um, media ecosystem that favors certain kinds of content and then other kind of content doesn't even get really much play at all. So by focusing on the specific element, the thing that he said in that speech, you really are kind of not telling the whole truth. And the whole truth has to do with why it is that that singular point would be such a focal point. And so newsworthiness, I think, it sets us up to play right into his hands in a lot of ways, but it also sets us up to tell less of the truth because we get so focused on a myopic point and then we're not thinking ecologically about the the uh, landscape that we occupy and that sort of pushes our attention in certain ways as opposed to others. I want to come back to this idea of an ecological view of, of the media landscape, but, but I want to focus first here on newsworthiness for a minute. Mm -hmm. Now that Donald Trump is president, he ends up posing very unique problems because whereas when he was a candidate, you might say, well, we're, we're way over covering him compared to some of the others. And that is what is giving him this in incredible rise. And I think there's very good evidence on that from, from um, John Sides and Lynn Vavrick and Michael Tesler in their book, Identity Crisis. But now that he's president, he's almost by definition newsworthy. And something I've been giving some thought to is when he became president, there was this real push around the idea that we can't normalize Donald Trump. We can't let this become normal. And I think that the media largely took that to heart. And the way we tried to operationalize it was we actually lowered the bar for covering him. The idea was anytime Donald Trump does something abnormal, it gets blanket coverage. Anytime he does something like racist or sexist or bigoted or xenophobic or lies in a particularly obvious and flagrant way or says something that is either flirting with fascism or flirting with actual fascists around the country or I'm sorry, around the world, like we give that a ton of coverage. And the idea is that we're making sure people see that there's something abnormal here, right? That's newsworthy. What is it like a, a good definition of newsworthy is what is not normal. Um, and yet 
I wonder if we haven't gotten this backwards, if the response shouldn't have been to raise the bar for covering Donald Trump, that he doesn't get to just control the entire national conversation every time he wants to say something terrible, that it actually should be a little bit harder for him to get coverage. Because if he's not going to act like the president, right, if he's not going to know what the hell he's talking about on policy, if he's not going to run a serious process in his White House, have mostly um, nominated people uh, running executive agencies, be saying things that is predictive of the shape of administration policy. Maybe the part of Donald Trump that his own staff is happy to tell you off the record does not represent his administration. It's just Trump being Trump and blowing off steam and communicating. Maybe that shouldn't get this like presidential coverage level. Maybe it should actually be the decision that to the extent he's not telling us anything new about him, we know that he holds these views and he's not telling anything new about administration policy, the bar should be higher and then the the, the coverage should flow to, to other players in American politics who are trying to solve problems or, or, or trying to do something. The idea that the best way to get coverage is to be negatively abnormal actually seems like a pretty bad incentive structure that we've set up with the best of intentions. I mean, it's a bad incentive structure maybe for some folks, but it's the best possible incentive structure for him. I mean, that's sure. what's so, that's, <laughs> the, that's the problem. That's the, the issue that he poses to the extent that what he says and does and the reaction to what he says and does to the extent that that's bad for the overall sort of media ecosystem, it's good for him, right? I mean, and, and it also plays into what I mentioned a little er- earlier is People are fascinated, even if they're revulsed by it, but audiences are fascinated by his racism, by his outrageousness. So this is also, again, not just a conversation about journalists, but it's what it is that people are interested in reading. And so, you know, I do think that this effort to not normalize him, it has resulted in a ton of coverage of the everyday sort of the tweets, like the Trump tweets of the day. Um, and that has certainly normalized the abnormal. Um, but it's done so because of the way the media ecology is structured. Those things work. I mean, those things work for news organizations, right? That's what people respond to. That's the great outrage of the day. And that is exactly what Donald Trump wants to have happen, that that is perfect for him. So there's this sort of strange confluence between Trump's interests in getting that kind of negative attention and triggering the libs and then sort of journalist efforts to not normalize him. Those two things line up and both ultimately end up benefiting, even if Trump is really happy about it. Journalists are not happy about it at all. Right. But it's still there's still benefit that I think is an interesting relationship to think through. Do you do you want to talk about this idea of taking an ecological perspective on the media? Because I think this is a term people aren't familiar with, but it's worth exploring a bit. Yeah, I mean, so over the last year or two, you, part of the project, especially with this oxygen report, is to kind of identify what are the problems. And I think that the primary problem that we're dealing with, I mean, I am committed to the idea that structural white supremacy is an enormous part of these conversations. So that's part of the issue. But and I guess that feeds into sort of the bigger claim, the larger claim, maybe, which is that our problem is not that our systems are broken. Our problem is that our systems are working. Our systems are working in the ways that they were designed to work, which then immediately loops you back to questions of who built the systems, what ideologies were they bringing to what they built? And then how does that connect to whiteness? So I'm I am committed to this idea that whiteness is a big part of this conversation. So, you know, once you identify what the problems are, 
that is still a tricky sort of task. But then it's like, okay, well, what now? Okay, so if our problem is that, you know, everything is working as it was intended to work, what the hell do you do? And so, you know, as I've thought about it over the last year, and I've actually been writing a book about this very sort of issue um, with my co-author, Ryan Milner, who I wrote my last book with, the thing that we've arrived at is approaching these problems through an ecological metaphor, but the entry point being pollution. So thinking about how information can be polluted and how that travels through the ecosystem. And one of the benefits of using pollution as this as this entry point is that people spread pollution. If you think about pollution in sort of the environmental, like actual sense, like pollution in the world, people can spread pollution without trying to. That, you know, you can pollute the waterways, whether you're actively trying to dump toxins or because you're flushing something down your toilet that you're not really thinking too much about, but it still ends up in the same, it seems ends up in the same place, right? And so if you frame our problem, information disorder in that way, in terms of pollution, it opens you up immediately to talking about all the ways, both deliberate, but also inadvertent that people spread polluted information, how it travels, how connections between systems allow problems over here to end up over there. So it's really a helpful way of looking at it. But the other benefit of of approaching things using an ecological metaphor is that it foregrounds connectedness. So already in the conversation, I've been, you know, kind of talking about journalists, but at the same time framing it to being a conversation about audiences. And that's because those two things within our ecosystem, they are fundamentally connected. You cannot untether one thing from the other thing. If you try to, you actually end up having only half the conversation, right? So Trump's tweets. You can't take Trump's tweets out of the context of the audiences, everyday citizens who respond to them. That's been true for his entire life, his entire political career, right? And it's sort of like um, one of the metaphors that is particularly helpful in this broader conversation, a hurricane, You would never point to a single gust of wind when talking about a hurricane and say, that's a hurricane, right? The hurricane is all of the different variables, all the different sources of energy, all the collisions, all the interactions. And if you want to make sense of what a hurricane is, you have to deal with all those things. You have to think about how all those things compound each other in complex ways. And it's the same thing with our media ecosystem currently. Trump's tweets by themselves, Trump himself by himself, is not as interesting or as complicated as the whole thing, right? Where where Trump situates, where he is situated within the ecosystem. Having those deeper conversations brings you to topics like whiteness and brings you to topics like the relationship between journalists and people. And it allows you to have conversations that don't force you to just focus on Trump's tweets of the day. It immediately redirects the conversation elsewhere. So I think that having that mechanism is really important, I think, when we're trying to respond to these newsworthy events, right? They clearly meet that threshold. But like, what are we not telling about the story by just focusing on those immediate things? And that's where the ecological approach, I think, is really helpful because it helps you immediately think systemically as opposed to textually, which is some some which is where we get caught up, I think. So I want to I, I like the term connectedness in here, and I want to I want to hone in on that for a minute. So Something that 
I think about a lot is the connection between Trump and the news media and then the connection between both Trump and the news media and the audience and the ways in which we feed each other. Uh, a good thing about the ecological metaphor is it reminds me of a lot of the work in the, the climate change debate and something you see in, in, in pollution issues and climate change issues a lot is what people call negative feedback loops, right? Where something begins happening, so you're releasing uh, greenhouse gases into the air, the earth is warming, that's further melting permafrost, which is further releasing methane into the air, which is further melting permafrost. And so you end up in this cycle where the system has developed a kind of uh, uh, like a like a dysfunctional relationship unto itself. And so Donald Trump operates within a within a media context that he partially sets but partially doesn't. So in this piece I'm working on, uh, I use the the Made in America showcase, which is where he makes some of these racist comments. But he makes a ton of other comments, and not only that, but the Made in America showcase is meant to be a spectacle. It is a showcase on the South Lawn of the White House for things that are made in America, and so they have a tank on the lawn with missiles and boats and he has like Bowie knives and there's all kinds of stuff there meant to create this real media friendly thing. So the, the, the news leads with it and, and we have this great spectacle of Donald Trump there sitting next to like a big missile talking about how cool it is when steel is made in America and we just don't cover it. He's trying to create a spectacle, right? He cares about that. But because the media refuses to enter into a relationship with it, it doesn't really happen. Almost nobody knows that that Made in America showcase, by the way, the third annual Made in America showcase <laughs> on the South Lawn happened. But we all know that he gave these racist answers in response to this question, whether or not we know what happened there. And so there's a moment when we enter into connectedness with him that is really catalytic. And I do think part of the reason we decide to do the 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 stories we do and part of the reasons he decides to do the, the the tweets he does is we see what the audience cares about right there is this incredibly explosive release of energy when you don't just get Donald Trump being offensive but you get the left being angry about it right like it it gives off this huge thing where if it's just Donald Trump being Donald Trump or even just people on the right liking Donald Trump it doesn't have nearly as much power there's something in the the, the, the energy released by the collision that is what gets you clicks, it's what gets you attention, it what makes you feel that you're writing something relevant, it gets you feedback. This isn't all cynical, like the feeling that the audience cares about what you're, what you're um, writing about is really important. But once you take that seriously, that it is our decision to enter into relationship with him and these things that he's doing that gives them their energy – like that puts a lot more responsibility on us in the media than I think we're often comfortable bearing. We don't want to be that big of a player, but of course we are. And seeing ourselves as part of the system as opposed to a mirror held up to the system seems really important there. Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that is critical to remember that doesn't really get discussed, I mean, and part of this comes from the, you know, view from nowhere, kind of the, uh, the attitude of many journalists Um Less so now, maybe, but like this idea that we're standing outside the story, we're telling you what the story is. This is something that media manipulators have really understood that, you know, journalists and everyday folks maybe have less of a grasp on or are not focusing on as much, which is our reactions become part of the story. You cannot separate the reaction from a story to the story itself. And when you have this idea that I'm just going to stand outside of it and I'm going to tell you what happened, 
it's sort of like that hurricane, right, that's that already has built up massive amounts of energy from all kinds of different sources. The, the hurricane actually generates additional energy based on the responses that it generates, right? So then the hurricane grows and grows as more and more people react to it. And so there, that's, that's a place where intervention could make a difference, that how you respond to a story is going to help determine its continuing trajectory. And yes, that is a responsibility. That's not just I am telling you what happened in the world. It is I am part of this. I will be part of this. I am always going to be part of this no matter what I say. And that sort of shifting of orientation, I think, could help redirect or help shift how people think about their reactions. Their reactions aren't separate. Their reactions are the thing. And that is, you know, that is a heavy, that's a heavy burden to carry, right? And also, because of all of the different sort of economic incentives that are driving um, reporting, where it's not, you know, when people think about journalism ethics, it's like, individual journalists don't always get to make the kinds of ethical calls they would like to because there's all kinds of other forces that are tipping their hand in what they cover and how they cover what their editor says what their editor needs based on the publisher publisher's needs all of that you know so it's not as simple as just saying you know what we're going to immediately start covering things differently but i think collectively understanding that there is a responsibility there you know not to be sort of like too um Warm and fuzzy, not that that's necessarily a bad thing, right? But there is there's just this logistic need to understand we are part of the story um, and and we need to think about our coverage because that coverage is going to determine where the story goes tomorrow. So, yeah, that's that's something that, you know, I don't know how many people would want to hear or want to be responsible for. I think it's easier to just show up, write your article and then go home. Right. But all of our articles, all of our tweets, all of our comments, they we carry them around with us, whether or not we um, want to believe that. All right. So we're going to take a quick break and I'll be back with more of my conversation with Whitney Phillips. Support for the gray area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger, or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts.
Let me try uh, a way of thinking about this out on you and see if it makes sense to you. Um, there's a, a Buddhist teacher named Shinzen Young who has this very famous line where he says, pain times resistance equals suffering. And the idea is that it's not just your pain that decides how much you suffer, but it's like how much how much you're fighting it, right? If you're if you're both hurting um, mentally or physically, and you're also furious at yourself for it or upset about it, like that's going to be even worse. And I've been thinking about a version of that for for the media that it's something like the offensiveness of a comment times immediate amplification of the comment equals the social impact that comment has. And so if what we're doing is taking the worst comments and giving them the most amplification, that's going to be how much impact and, and to some degree how much damage they can do. Whereas, you know, we can't control the, the the question of Donald Trump making constantly offensive, terrible comments. But to some degree, we actually do have some control of the media amplification of it. Um, and there's, again, a lot. This is not a call for censorship. There's a huge amount Donald Trump says that we do not cover at any level or care about. And so the idea that we just make different choices about what to cover, that's a, that's a coverage decision we are now making, whether or not we admit to make. Making it. But if he said terrible things that got very little amplification, I think the damage they could do would probably be lower. And the damage that could be done to our entire conversation as a country would probably be lower. And I don't feel super comfortable saying this, right? Because it does feel like censorship to me, um, even if I even if I don't think that's actually an analytically coherent way of putting it. And so the thing that I recognize that I do and we all do is social media gives us an out. If something is already dominating the conversation on Twitter, even if we've kind of made it dominate that conversation, well, then to move to covering it in our papers or on cable news or whatever is very easy because, look, like we've been socially validated. We're not deciding this is important. It's already the only thing anybody is talking about where anybody means people on Twitter who we follow. But that allows us to kind of take an escape hatch in what our responsibility is here. Whereas if you're taking a different frame on this and you're saying, okay, like we have a responsibility for being the media amplification part of the like offensiveness times amplification equals social damage equation. Like, well, that I don't know exactly what rubric we would want to use to make those choices. I think that's a very hard question. But you'd probably want to use a rubric that is better than people on Twitter are pissed off about this. Therefore, this should get the most amplification. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And the thing is, you know, yes, these these choices and, and reframing how we think about ourselves in the world, that's hard. But you know what's not working really well? What we're doing now, we can either make efforts to shift the paradigm in a way that's going to be less toxic to the overall population, or we choose to keep doing what we're doing, which is only going to make things worse. So I think that's the that's the decision point that we're at. And, and to your point of censorship, this is something that I encounter a lot. And a lot of journalists get, um, and everyday people too, um, they get a little bit, their hackles, I always want to call them cockles, but that's wrong. They're hackles, I believe. They sort of get a little bit defensive at the suggestion of, you know, practicing strategic silence or not reporting on things or just sort of staying silent. Maybe don't say something on Twitter today, right? People get worried about about censorship. And, and to that point, at the beginning of every class that I teach since 2008, one of the things that I do in the classroom is I have the students stand in a circle around the room and then put goggles over their eyes, like, like they're wearing goggles with their hands. Um, and then I ask them to describe what they see. And so their peripheral vision is, of course, obscured. And so they can only describe 
the thing that's basically right in front of their faces, right across from them in the room. So then what I do is I start to do a cool little dance and I ask them, okay, again, now what do you see? The the students who are standing across the circle from me, they can describe that and then they like make a funny joke and then everybody laughs and then it's a good icebreaker. But the students who are standing directly next to me, they can't see that I am being silly. They can't comment on my behavior at all because their peripheral vision obscures that ability to see. And the thing about some of our choices, you know, what it is we're focusing on or what it is we're not saying, it's not so much censorship. It's calling attention to that whole circle. It's actually finding ways to tell a more robust and fuller truth. Because if you're just coming at something from one perspective, that's fine. And you can see a lot from your one vantage point. But there are other vantage points. And when some Um, You know, when you get too kind of myopically focused on where you're standing and exactly what you're seeing, you're not looking at all the stuff you're missing. So this this decision to not cover certain things and instead maybe to look somewhere else, to cover some other element of the story, that isn't censorship as much as filling in the blanks, the conceptual blanks that allow for a deeper understanding of what's happening. So I think that with Trump's tweets, you can tell a really robust story about race in America, racism in America, white supremacy in America. And Trump's tweets can maybe be kind of a part of that story a little bit, but you can tell a story where it's not central. And you're saying something bigger and you're saying something more important that people can learn from and and just kind of paying attention to that perspectival difference and recognizing that sometimes not saying something doesn't mean you're censoring yourself or others. It means you're opening up opening up fields of vision for seeing other bigger things. And so that that's kind of the rejoinder that I have when people are like, well, I don't want to not I don't want to not cover it. Well, what else could you how else could you tell the story better? Where else could you be looking? And I think that's something that doesn't really get talked a lot about. It's such an important point, I think. And it's such a hard one to feel as a journalist. But every time we cover a story, we are not covering every other story instead. Mm -hmm. That is why I think the amplification model is so important, that no matter what we are doing, no matter if it's a news report or a take or a cable news segment or long-form narrative journalism or investigative journalism or a podcast episode or anything – By choosing to write about, speak about, make a documentary about this, you're choosing to not make it about all those other things, which is fine. We have to make those choices. But then it's very weird to – because I hear this all the time too. Then it's very weird to to, to call something uh, about how to make those choices censorship um, because, well, I mean, does everything else that is not getting covered get to claim that it is being censored? Uh, There's like a very weird way in which we kind of like duck back and forth around what our incentives are and what our jobs demand of us. And I I just think part of the problem, I I will say, like speaking very honestly right here, part of the problem is that it is very emotionally compelling to cover the things that you're most and everybody around you is most emotionally compelled by. So it's not really a, a censorship problem, but there is this feeling of, well, shouldn't I stand up and 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 speak on this? And I mean, this is different, right? For for different people, if you're a like a like a healthcare beat reporter, you're not expected to have a comment on everything Donald Trump says about the squad. But in in a kind of generalized way, particularly for um, pundits and other kinds of generalists, there's this real uh, feeling that you want to be in the conversation, that you want to that that you probably are having similar reactions to what everybody else is having. And it takes both a lot of emotional discipline, but also a kind of business and economic structure around you to make different decisions. 
right? To say, I'm going to let this one pass me by knowing that A, like that is emotionally where all the energy is, including maybe my energy. And B, um, that's also where the kind of easy retweets, clicks, audience growth, whatever is. I'm not pessimistic in the sense of I think you can actually do more out of becoming more distinct. Um, it's a good long-term business strategy, even if it's harder. But there's something that you're really pulled in that direction, and it takes a lot to 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 not give into that pull. It's something I'm not just sympathetic to, but that I fail at all the time. Well, and that's I mean, so it's 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 interesting, and it kind of loops back to something we were talking about earlier, which is, you know that other people are going to be covering this too. So it's not just that the, you know, the particular story is emotionally resonant to you. It's resonant to your readers. And then, you know, your competitors are going to be talking about it. It's already on social media. It's already trending. How are you not supposed to respond to that when you have all of these pressures, both personally, internally, and then externally sort of pushing you in that direction? And it reminds me, so another kind of entry point metaphor for for some of these issues is very uh, reasonably and understandably the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. And so what the what the Dust Bowl shows us. So basically what happened is that in the 1920s, you had this like very unusual kind of boom period where a bunch of people were incentivized to go west and, you know, to to get some land and to start tilling the land. And many of the people who did that were not farmers by trade. They were suitcase farmers. Um, that was what the pejorative was at the time, who just came in and all these native grasslands started getting ripped up, ripped up. Wheat was being produced at this unbelievable rate, right? People were making a lot of money. But then the more wheat that was being produced, the more prices dropped. And then the more wheat needed to be produced to make up for those dropped prices. Okay, so this is fine while the the rains held out, right, while the weather was good and, and wheat was still being produced. But then suddenly, right as the Great Depression was really starting to take hold in the area, the rain stopped for 10 years. And all of this, all of these efforts to till up the land and plant the wheat and, and harvest the wheat and all of this, it devastated the natural ecosystem, which needed to be, you know, these, these grasslands, because that's what kept all of the dust and wind in check. So suddenly you have all this exposed soil, and then the wind started because the rain stopped. And that's what created this human-made catastrophe that was, that was the Dust Bowl, these dust storms that just rolled in and rolled out and devastated the landscape, killed livestock, killed people both immediately and long term because of respiratory issues, all of this different, all of this different stuff. And what was so hard, everybody knew, like all these land conservationists in the 20s, they knew that this was coming because these farming practices were haphazard. They were irresponsible. They were unsustainable. So everyone was waving the alarm like we can't we can't do this. This is going to be a disaster. And then, of course, it was. The problem, and this is what speaks to that point of sort of iterative reporting or reporting on something because you know someone else is going to or you see it trending on Facebook and so you feel like you've got to comment on it. The problem in the Dust Bowl is that even if you were very, very careful about your own farming practices, if your neighbor was not, their dust would be picked up by the wind, dumped on your field, and then you would become part of that problem. You would be roped in into the overall cycle of this air pollution. And that's what happens on, on in social media uh, kind of tangled up with journalism is that even when you're trying really hard to do it responsibly and you're really trying to make more careful choices, you get roped into these amplification problems even at your best. And so there is this sense of, oh, my God, what are we supposed to do if 
you know, I know that bad stories are going to be written about this. So it would be better if I wrote a good story about it, because at least then I could contribute my little bit. But regardless of why you're tilling your field, how you're tilling your field, you're still going to be contributing the dirt. And so that's that's where we are. And I think that's the that's what makes it so difficult to figure out where do we move forward, because not being part of the problem means you're part of the problem and being part of the problem means you are. It's really it's impossible. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, something that that makes me think a bit about is the way we think about what the audience wants, I think, is pretty flawed. So compared to 10 years ago, but much more to the point compared to 30 or 40 years ago, the amount of choice the audience has and the amount of influence over the media that the audience has is unparalleled of, at any point in human history. Um, you can get anything from anyone. It's clear through what you're retweeting and sharing and searching what you actually want, at least for some definition of the word want. And so, you know, what would you predict based off of this? I think you would probably predict in a world where the audience has vastly more choice and power, the audience is better served. They like what they're getting more and they like the media more. And there's not a lot of evidence of that. Um, the media is somewhat more trusted under Donald Trump as a kind of rally around the the, the opposition uh, effect, but it's not trusted historically. And if you just like listen to people, listen to people on social media, for instance, which is where a lot of the locus of the issues we're talking about are, people don't seem to like it. Um, I, I I don't know. Most journals I know don't like it, but we're all in it. We're all doing it and everybody's pissed off about it. Um, there's this feeling that we're all, nobody quite knows how to get out of the system, but the system collectively is not creating good outcomes. And this just... I think that we have a lot of trouble with the idea of we may not want the thing that we are actually doing. Um, I'll, I'll give a very lame example of this, but I was at a house with friends over the weekend. And when um, you go to a house with friends, something that happens is everybody buys lots of delicious snacks. Like the whole place is filled with like chips and cookies and whatever. And I do not do well around a ton of snacks and I eat a huge amount of them and then I literally feel bad all weekend like like a dog that ate too much dog food and it like makes me enjoy the experience less and on the one hand if you looked at it from a from a capitalistic perspective right I made the choice to eat it clearly it's what I wanted to do but like in my life I make sure there are never snacks around me so I can't do that to myself. And there's this weird way in which we have set up these structures in which we can get audience feedback, get their wants, get their help. But it's all within this one mode of like hyper twitch, very fast, non-reflective, like did this piss you off? Did you love this? Press like, press retweet, send an angry tweet. And I think that we feel like we're getting a version of what the audience wants from them, but we're actually getting something they don't want, right? We're getting the version of ourselves that is around like snack food meant to um, meant to make us overeat all the time instead of the version of ourselves that we choose when we have a little bit more space and, 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 and mode for reflection. Here's something that's even more depressing. So one of the most fascinating studies I, that I've read um, in the last – I don't know what time means anymore in the Trump era. So I don't a, a year, a year, you, maybe you, you keep you keep saying I, that. <laughs> I don't I don't remember. I don't remember. But so this is a recent study um, that is looking at reactionary um, YouTube channels and sort of is focusing. It's by Becca Lewis, um, who is at Stanford University. And she had been she wrote that um, with Data and Society. And 
she talks about how so when we talk about so far right um, reactionary stuff on YouTube, there's always this conversation about radicalization. We're very worried because people who watch these videos are more likely to become radicalized. They go down these algorithmic, you know, um, rabbit holes and then they end up on the other side, you know, extremists, basically. And there is definitely something to talk about there, although there are kind of complications to raise around the term radicalization and extremism and all kinds of things. So it's it's not a one-to-one thing and it's, you know, but there's another side of that conversation that doesn't get talked about as much that kind of speaks to what you were just saying, that this cycle that we're in, it does not bring out our better angels. And far-right reactionary YouTube channels are are a perfect example of that because the radicalization goes both ways. Because on one hand, yes, you have audience members who become over time radicalized, not just from what they're watching on this particular YouTube channel, but then other sort of algorithmic docenting is bringing them you know, it, it it assumes that this person wants to see more extremist content. And so it brings them to more extremist content that radicalizes. But as it turns out, what Becca Lewis found is that that same process also has the effect of radicalizing the YouTubers themselves because they're responding to what the audience wants. The audience wants because they've been they basically have the taste for I don't want to say blood or human flesh because that's gross and I don't like those kinds of metaphors, but (laughs) they basically, they have a taste for increasingly extremist content. Okay, if you're a YouTuber and you may make your living or supplement your income through your channel, you're going to be responsive to what the audience is expecting of you. And so you continue giving it to them. Well, if their appetites continue becoming more and more extreme, your output is going to become more and more extreme because you don't want to lose those clicks. You don't want to lose your followers. And so it ends up creating a system in which everybody ends up worse as people because of both the push-pull between the content producer and then the consumer of that of that content. So, you know, it's um, that's a part of the radicalization conversation that we don't have very often because that's not how we typically we think of the content producer being more in control. And certainly when you're talking about sort of mainstream journalism, but, you know, that happens in a different way when you're talking about these far right reactionaries, too. I think this is totally right. I mean, but I want to say it it happens to everyone. I think about this in terms of Twitter a lot. And I'll sometimes get an, an email about parts of an episode like this where people say, if you don't like Twitter, why, you know, don't be on it. And so I will say here that the reason I talk about Twitter is because I think it is the single most influential platform in my industry, Um, not because I personally feel like I'm actually really lucky. I don't need to be on it that much. I have enough of a profile and have, you know, built up enough capital that I can kind of do what I want. I have this podcast, like I have all kinds of things, but a lot of people coming up don't. And something I think a, a lot about. So a couple years ago when Twitter went algorithmic, it moved to where instead of when you launched it, you saw your feed. When you launch it now, you see what is getting the most engagement in your feed. And I remember that happening. And I remember watching the change in myself where instead of seeing this kind of conversation happening all around me, I would tune in and I would see, oh, this is what's working. These are the kinds of tweets that are working. This is what is getting 30,000 retweets. It's not a link to an interesting article. It's like basically like, Donald Trump is a jerk. Um, and 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 obviously more than that. And I watched um, a lot of people in my industry, and I want to say very clearly, at times me, 
changed the kinds of things they were writing. I mean, when I got into when I got into journalism, like this was sort of the era of counterintuitive journalism, and you'd have there's a big premium placed on articles that like took something you thought was true and challenged you to believe it was wrong. And those articles had a lot of problems. Uh, at the American Prospect, we used to joke that we were counter counterintuitive journalism. Like, you know, you, you you used to think the minimum wage is good, and you know what? It actually is good. There you go. <laughs> um, but there was more of a culture of which I think had its healthy parts of 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 challenge and of trying to be interesting. And on Twitter, like what I see is a culture of trying to get retweets. And if you want to get retweets, like there is a particular like it's not like I know how to write a tweet that will get a lot of engagement. But over time that if you operate within that structure, you will change and you will become what that structure needs you to be to succeed in it. And I don't think the changes that it is forcing on people are are good ones. But then that filters back into our coverage priorities, right? If you're there, and again, I can say like this is how plenty of articles of mine have worked. If you are there and you write 10 tweets that day and one of them gets thousands of engagements, you're like, that's the one I should write an article about. Like that is where the audience is. And the fact that that's a very specific audience working under a very specific set of incentives. It's very hard to keep that in mind. And by the way, it's probably true that that is where at least some of the audience is. I actually find Twitter to be a pretty good push on what might work, um, at least uh, you know conceptually. And so I, I think some, this point you're making is really important. It changes us too. It's not just that we're following the audience. It is that having this kind of feedback mechanism from the audience changes what we are doing. And because human beings are human beings and we rationalize what is in our self-interest, it doesn't feel like we're making cynical decisions. It feels like – I mean I believe this stuff too. There's a part of me that can be like very harshly um, snarky and a part of me can be very strident and a part of me that can be nuanced. And these are all authentic to me. And the place I'm in and to some degree like the the level of self-awareness I have decides – the context I'm in and the self-awareness I have decides what comes out. And the context we're in is pulling a very certain thing out of us. Yeah. It reminds me – are did you – are you familiar with George Orwell's Shooting an Elephant, that essay? Uh-huh. So in that essay – and I, I like teaching this essay because it speaks to the reciprocal influence of the audience, which happens offline too, right? But you don't have the sort of algorithmic element when you're talking about how you respond to the people in the room, right? The people in the room influence your behavior in some really significant ways. That's part of the socialization process. So you'd better hope that the people in that room are decent people because that's going to determine how you start behaving in many cases. And he – talks about it. Um, he's an, an imperial officer. It's ostensibly a, a nonfiction story, but his job is to go down and shoot this elephant that is running around, you know, the village that he's supposed to be overseeing. And he doesn't want to do it. And especially when he sees, because he doesn't want to shoot an elephant to begin with, but by the time he gets down there, the elephant is fine. It's not hurting anybody. It had stepped on someone and killed them. But now the elephant hasn't done anything. And it's just grazing peacefully. But he now has certain thousands of people walking behind him, you know, uh, in, impelling him, impelling him, compelling him to move forward and to, to follow through on this task. So he knows it's wrong. He doesn't want to do it, but he has to shoot the elephant anyway, because otherwise he would be made a coward. And he talks in that moment of, 
you, and then the elephant dies this horrific, long, terrible death. And it's just it's horrible. But he talks about how, you know, the 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 evil of imperialism is that imperialism shapes the imperial officer too, that your face grows to fit the mask that you're wearing. And if you occupy this algorithmically influenced space that basically privileges the worst impulses of everyone, then your face is going to grow to fit that mask and we will all be better, we will all be worse off for it. And so that's, and it's really hard though to rest yourself from that mask or in many cases to even recognize that you're wearing one. And that's a helpful art, uh, essay to teach students because it forces them to think, well, what masks has your face grown to fit that you're not even aware of? You know, and so it's a it's a disturbing point of self-reflection when you think about, you know, what, oh boy, what have I, what have I grown into that maybe I don't, I wish I hadn't, but here we are. And what do we do? What do we do with this mask that we're wearing that we can't take off for all these different reasons? And I think that's where a lot of the existential sort of panic comes from. Time for a short break. We're going to be right back with my guest, Whitney Phillips. Let's talk a bit about what we do, because I think that there are there are at least ways of thinking and experimenting about this that, 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 that could be interesting. So let me just put it to you simply. Should the media have given, should I have given so much coverage to Donald Trump's insults about the squad? And should we continue to give that coverage as he continues to, to resuscitate this every morning? I think that that particular case and it's you know, again, one among many, and it's got unique particularities. But so speaking just of that case, um, I think that there was something to that coverage. Um, and I'm not singling you out in general, but no, I'm actually trying to single me out so that this is not a critique of other people. <laughs> oh, OK. Well, you mean so your particular tweet about, you know, I, I don't mean my particular tweet, but I'd almost prefer to talk about this in terms of me okay. because other people are making their decisions and, you know, um, I have done this kind of thing enough times and I'm still doing it. And I'm in some way like having this meta conversation about it now that I think we can just use me as opposed to to to, to coming down on people who aren't here to defend themselves. <laughs> OK. All right. Well, so what I mean, so I guess the question for you then is what what masks were you wearing in that moment? Do you can you recognize them? Do you do you know? Yeah. So I think that when I put on my like writer and tweeter and editor hat about that, I think my implicit theory was this. It is inherently and obviously newsworthy that the president of the United States is functionally an unreconstructed racist, that he is engaging in age-old racist tropes, that he is saying things that are literally dangerous, right, that are, that are, are, are putting a target on the back of a couple of, you know, four members of Congress, four freshman members of Congress who fit profiles that he and his base – have the most loathing for. And so pointing this out is important because the American people should know the kind of person they have elected. And pointing it out is important because it is important to kind of stand up and be counted in these kinds of moments and to say, like, this is unacceptable. Like, that is, I think, that is like my high-minded version of why I, I, I like, latch onto this stuff because I think that there is, it's important. But then I think... You know, one thing we did at Vox and that The New York Times did, too, is right after that, we republished these pieces we've done before, tallying up Donald Trump's history of racist and bigoted statements going way back into his private career. And so there's this other part of it that says there's actually no new information here. It's not that I didn't think he was a racist the day before it happened or not that I think I've convinced anybody that he is. It was just like another spin of the wheel on this. 
And like it was the exact spin of the wheel that he wanted us all to do. And like I don't look around and think that it's working. Like I don't think that our constant calling of Donald Trump out, constantly calling Donald Trump out, is really um, has led to the, the much more idyllic public conversation that I wish that I wish we had. Well, I guess yeah. So then the next kind of thought that I have is, so all of those things are the case. I agree with you on those points. And who do you think that coverage benefits? I so here's something. I have a little bit of trouble this part of the conversation. I think there tends to be a argument that it benefits Donald Trump, which it might. I don't think we know, and I think to a first approximation, it literally doesn't matter for him. Um, he has had the most stable approval ratings of any president ever. Uh, I don't think this whole thing is going to change one vote anywhere for him. The people that I've come to think of benefits are actually racists. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason I think that is that I think that social opprobrium, the boundaries on what people are kind of permitted to say in contexts without getting some backlash – is a very powerful force for staunching some pretty terrible impulses that live like within the hearts of many, many people. And I think that what is happening is that as we continue to cover these Trumpish eruptions, we are weakening those bonds. And so I think that um, people who actually are quite racist or, or had these feelings but maybe didn't quite want to say them this way, look up and now the president is saying them. And now they it's clear they have allies. And you know what? Maybe actually a lot of people thought this. They didn't really want to talk about it before, but, but they're not alone at all. And so I don't think this is about a partisan like yes or no on Donald Trump. Like is this good for him in 2020? I think that the people who are emboldened here are the people who felt that these views were socially unacceptable and they should keep them quiet or actually fight them in themselves and are now seeing that they're not. Or people who really like Donald Trump and don't think about this stuff much and are now kind of rallying around his side because they they want their they they want their partisan leader to be seen well. Yeah, and he's being attacked now by the media and they're unfair uh -huh. and they're biased. And yep. well, and the other, yeah, the other part too that I always find so funny and funny is the wrong word. Um, and I'm really furrowing a lot as I say it. But, you know, when this assumption that you call a racist out and you accuse them of racism and you think that that somehow is going to change their mind or maybe they don't realize it or they'll repent because a person who holds particularly virulently, violently racist ideology, they don't believe those things because they think they're wrong. Like, that's the thing that, that sometimes doesn't really scan, that they believe they're correct. And so if you accuse them of being racist, it's kind of a shrug, like, yeah, I think white people are better. I mean, like, it's not it does not have the same effect on a racist person the way a non-racist person would be so horrified at being accused of racism, right? And so by providing these litanies of all of the terrible racist things Trump has said, for some audiences, that's a, th that's a litany of shame. And for other people who think that those things are right, that's a litany, that's proof of why they like the guy. You know, I, I, just something that I think is, was really telling a couple of days into this, uh, the squad, um, Ocasio-Cortez and El Omar and Rashida Tlaib and Ayanna Presley gave a press conference. And I don't know how many people listening watched it, but but I did. And it was really interesting. And in particular, people – Presley gets less press mm -hmm. than some of the others here. She just is less controversial. Um, she's less out front on some things. She's a really remarkable politician um, and gave this, I thought, really beautiful speech. But at the end of it, she said – you know, and she was talking to the media in the room and she said, I really urge everybody in this room and beyond to not take the bait. 
this is a distraction. And she's talking here about comments about her. She said, this is a distraction from issues of care and consequence. And then the next morning, Donald Trump escalated and and things just went on from there. But so I think the thought experiment that I keep coming back to is like, what if we hadn't covered it, right? What if we had treated it the way we treat so much that he says and so much he has said on those days and just hadn't covered it? Like we don't give blanket coverage to every time Donald Trump says the economy is good. Would the world, the country be worse off? Is there something we know now that we wouldn't have known or would things just be a little bit better? And like this is a, the hard thing for me. Like I, I don't I don't think this coverage has achieved anything in terms of public information or like a like I don't think it's been constructive. Certainly not. It's not that I think we should have silenced it, but there's a real difference between something getting a story on A12 um, or the digital equivalent of A12 and something being like the headline story day after day after day after day. And you know when Presley came out and said this is a distraction, I sort of thought. Yeah, like, and and you would know because it's about you, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, and I think that that that's what kind of bothered me about about some of this coverage, or not bothered, maybe bothered isn't right, but made me feel unsettled, maybe made me feel ambivalent because it, on one hand, it was so outrageous that I appreciated the call out of the racism for what it was, but at the same time, it does kind of replicate his underlying argument about whose voices and what perspectives count. Because then all we saw for all those days was hearing that message over and over and over. And then the message of, hey, you know, focus on. So what did what was what was the phrase she exactly said? Because that resonated with me, Presley, at the end. said, I think I I have this right from from memory. It's it's a distraction from issues of care and consequence. Yeah, care and consequence. So if that had been the conversation that was foregrounded, what would it have looked like, right? But instead, we have this conversation that's just repetition of racist statements and people, you know, the chanting again and again and again. It doesn't become that deeper conversation. It just becomes this sort of fetishized conversation that in a weird way, in a background way, it buys into the argument that 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 is the message that we need to be focusing on. And I just I don't think that is the message we should be focusing on. I do think we need to be focusing on, you know, issues of reciprocity and responsibility and care and how we are connected to each other, whether we like it or not. And those conversations don't happen if you're just focusing on the same racist statement that isn't surprising to anybody. Because, again, like we already knew that about him. It didn't need to be laid out as clearly as it was that the man says racist things. We know. We've always known. That's always been central to it. So, yeah, it that was a story that was it was both good and important, but then also made me feel like barfing. You know, there was also something a lot uglier that happened in it as a dynamic that I want to bring up here, which is I watched over the course of that week as Donald Trump narrowed his focus. And so first it was, you know, these four congresswomen who hate America should should go home, right? And everybody's like, well, three of them were born here and one of them is, you know, a, a citizen who came here when she was six. So um, what, what the hell are you talking about? And then he, and he kept narrowing. And finally, it was really Ilhan Omar. He focused in on the member of the squad who came here when she was a child, who has a bit of an accent, who wears a headdress, who who is in some ways the like the best villain for his audience. And I, I, you could almost watch him market testing it, right? He never talks about Presley. And there's just this way in which 
pushed him and it gave him this space to target the message and make it worse and worse and worse and more and more and more dangerous. And then that finally it's like it's about her that the chant of send her back happens when him, him like kind of stepping back and smiling. And there is this way in which that to me showed the failure of it, of, of the coverage, that the sunlight wasn't a disinfectant. It was an accelerant, right? He was getting a reaction. And as he got a reaction, he began to fine tune against that reaction. Well, now you can't say that Ilan Omar was born here because like she was born in Somalia. And then he began bringing up this uh, this completely baseless, ridiculous thing of people being like, well, you know, Trump saying, well, there are rumors. I don't know about them that she like married her brother, which they're just this is just bullshit. And it just got uglier and uglier. And I just kept thinking that if what we're doing is creating the space for it to just get uglier and uglier. And it's not clear that any public purpose in terms of information is being served, except to see that our president, again, can just get uglier and uglier. Well, then, like, we have to rethink this. Like, this can't be the reaction our coverage is creating. Like, that, this can't be the incentive structure we're creating. And it clearly on some level is. Yeah, the counter narrative just wasn't just wasn't there. And I think that when thinking about how do you respond to the racist stuff he has said and God knows the racist stuff he is going to continue to say, I mean, I think that. There are two things that are important to think through. And the first is, you know, are you inadvertently replicating some element of his message, even just through repetition? But are you are you only putting, you know, white people on the screen to talk about it? Are you what is the parody of who is part of the story? Like if it's if it's a story produced by white people and then the white people and then the people on the TV are only white faces chanting and that it's just basically white people commenting on other white people, that thinking about that, thinking about representation is is an important thing because, again, that sort of accidentally replicates the underlying message of like America is white. America is about whiteness. So that's one thing to kind of be conscientious of. But the other thing to be conscientious of, too, is that I don't think it's just about triggering the libs. I think it's also about demoralizing the libs. And so when you're talking about 2020 and then just generally how people feel in the world, I think it's important to try to balance in some way the scales of despair and the coverage of both the initial comments and then the ratcheting up of those comments and then the chants. It just it is so disgusting. It's it is it is soul crushing to see that. And the thing about being soul crushed is that that can depress people's sense that there's anything that can be done about it. What are we going to do about this situation we found ourselves in? And it's not that in reporting you need to try to find like the silver lining. That's not it at all. But like, where's the where's the defiance? Where's the resilience what are people in different communities doing to push back, not just against Trump's tweets, but the presence of racism generally? And you can't do all of this in one story, of course, but thinking about how do you how, what light can you shine on people who are pushing back in ways that are meaningful? Those stories tend not to get told. The stories that get told are the horrifying stories, and they need to be told because it's horrifying and, and that needs to be there. But I don't know. I just I wonder where. How if there could be a way to foreground, to oxygenate resilience in the face of this defiance in the face of this. And that's something that Omar does well and in an interesting way is that she's defiant in the most patriotic way that you can imagine that, you know, in her responses in the in the clips that you saw of her responding to him, there was a glint behind her eyes of no, no. 
and calling attention to so many people who are saying no, you know, in their immediate communities and then sort of broadly across the country. I think there's space for some of that, too, because that's also part of the conversation that also gets drowned out when we're only focusing on the despair and the horror. What, what something that makes me think about is that there are two levels of the reaction of, of, of a counter reaction people can imagine here. I think we've talked quite a bit about one of them, which is you let Trump, the president, because he is the president, set the terms of the debate, but then you focus on a different part of the debate, right? Donald Trump um, attacks a squad, and so you know you 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 go and you profile Ilhan Omar, or you go and you, you look into communities that are that are trying to deal with the sort of racism and xenophobia that he triggers. Then there's this other level of, well, if you do that. You're still letting him control the debate. You're still letting him cut the divisions he wants to cut into American politics and life. And you just shouldn't. That you just like he doesn't he shouldn't have this kind of agenda setting power, particularly not separated from the actual powers of the presidency. He's not launching a war or proposing a bill here. He's just chatting. He's just going to a rally and talking. And I I wonder about this. I think the thing that feels like the safer move here is that first one, right? It's to say, okay, like we have to cover the things that he's saying and people responding to, but we should pivot uh, so that the kind of coverage like shines a light in a different direction. But I think there's this other way of saying, yeah, you know, we just consign some of this stuff to the dustbin, right? We just decide in the way we decide is true for so much that he and every politician says we just decide it's not that interesting, right? I mean, nobody cared if Paul Ryan talked about tax cuts or Barack Obama talked about expanding universal pre-K or for that matter, when you know Donald Trump's administration is currently engaged in a, a lawsuit to overturn and completely root out the Affordable Care Act. And it gets a lot less coverage than any of this, but that's something they're really doing. It's arguing through the courts as we speak. And so I think this is a much harder place for journalists to be in, but just the idea of like, we should not get, cede quite so much control over the agenda, certainly not without a more rigorous approach to this idea of newsworthiness, right? That we somehow have to be more in control of what – of which conversations we're going to amplify and which ones we're not as opposed to constantly just – if you're amplifying the worst conversation even in the best way, you're still amplifying the worst conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean and I think that that's where – you know, an ecological approach to some of this, it opens up more possibilities of where you could take a story. And again, choosing to not cover his specific tweets, it doesn't mean you're censoring him. You could then open up an entirely new and critical vista that otherwise wouldn't have been discussed. So you're actually creating a more robust picture of the world than this really narrow myopic one that is always going to um, stem from what he wants us to cover. What he wants us to cover is the smallest little sliver of the world. And it's the sliver of the world that he controls. But it's just one kid in a college classroom holding goggles over their eyes, right? Like there's a bunch of other people in the room who have different vantage points that could be tapped to change the direction of a particular conversation. But so if when you're approaching from this ecological sort of framework, then the question doesn't just have to be, is this newsworthy? Because with Trump, the answer is always going to be yes. Um, but you can ask, OK, well, what pollution is it going to generate for which bodies? And, you know, what pollution might it mitigate for which bodies and whose bodies will it nourish? And those are questions I think that can bring you to you can tell compelling, clickable stories that just are not playing by his ground rules. He plays by the ground rules of newsworthiness. So, OK, let's find a new game. Let's tell different stories in a different way that you can still get access to the world and understand the world 
but it doesn't have to be through his goggles. We've got to find a way to get away from his goggles. He will always have those goggles on lockdown. He has got it to a T. So we need a different set. And and so that means we need a different mm, approach, a different paradigm to ask these questions out of. And that's why I think that that particular approach is, is helpful in that way. I think it's a good place to, to come to a close. So I know when you were on the show last time, uh, I always ask the three books question. Um, and so you gave three three great books in. But I wonder if in the spirit of moving people's attention to more nourishing things, you could offer a couple recommendations that you think are, are good things to think about instead of what is in the news or even, frankly, instead of what is in this conversation right now. Oh, um, well, the one book that I have been really influenced by um, recently, sort of a, kind of when you're writing something and then you encounter something else and it shifts the way you look at it, it it's just sort of that transformative kind of book. So it's by a woman. Um, her name is Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. She's a, a Native American woman and a botanist. And she wrote this book called Braiding Sweetgrass. And it's all about connecting um, indigenous knowledge systems with scientific knowledge systems and the ways that when you entwine those two, you arrive at a richer um, understanding of the world. And that is how that's what's informed a lot of my thinking about what well, we need to shift the paradigm. So what she's talking about is what happens if you shift from a worldview that focuses on rights to a worldview that focuses on responsibility. And especially, and she's talking about climate change in particular, or just relationships to the environment in general, how does your relationship to the environment shift when you go from approaching the world as like a series of commodities to a series of reciprocities or a series of gifts? What does that do to your behavior? And she argues that, you know, the stories that we tell shape the actions that we undertake in a kind of evolutionary way that you then pass on to others. And that's why I think that shifting how we think about some of these issues, going from um, talking about newsworthiness and the sort of standard kind of paradigm that we've been working under and shifting it to this more, you know, ecological, how might that shift what we understand and how might that shift our behavior? And so so that book has really, it's totally unrelated to the topic at hand, but has been nourishing to me in, in ways that are continuing to surprise me as I keep thinking through this. I mean, I have a lot of, I, there are some other books that are focused more on historical precedent. Um, so, you know, we, there is obviously, you could fill a whole library with books about the Trump era, and I'm sure someday someone will. What will his presidential library be like, by the way? He said it's going to be at Mar-a-Lago. Oh, good. Great. Yeah, well, because we live in the dumbest of all possible timelines. Fun. At least like the um, kitschiest of all possible timelines. I, I, I'm, okay, I'm going to, no, okay, refocusing. <laughs> I can't, I won't. Um, but yeah, so so thinking about the sort of historical context for some of this, um, Elaine Parsons, she's a historian, she wrote a fascinating, fascinating book about the first wave of the Klan. Um, and talks a lot about news coverage, and the book is just called Ku Klux, um, and that talks about really these uncanny overlaps between how uh, the Klan was covered at the time by northern newspapers in particular, and the overlaps with how the, quote, alt-right in big scare quotes was approached as a narrative um, in 2016. So that's really, really fascinating. Um, 
I mean, I talked a lot about whiteness. Um, I mean, and that also has been informed. So that uh, is a book. So Joe Fagan wrote The White Racial Frame, and that talks about how structural white supremacy can result in obvious sort of prejudices and bigotries. But it also is a can be a conceptual toolkit of just the things you take for granted as air, that whiteness can is ideological in this in this important symbolic way. So those are three books. I guess two of them are very depressing. Um, but one of them is is really a nourishing. Yeah, and one of them sounds so nice. One of them sounds nice. The other two are hard, a hard reading. But I don't I mean, these days I don't it's rare that I get to read or engage with anything that isn't challenging to me in one way or the other. Um, or calls attention to the challenges that others face. So it's uh, it's a lot of a lot of heaviness all the time. Whitney Phillips, thank you very much. Thank you so much. All right, thank you to Whitney Phillips. I don't exactly know what to say about this conversation in the sense that I think that a lot of it is right, um, but it's also really hard to operationalize. But the, but the one thing I really want to to leave people with, um, because I say it's from inside the media machine, is. We have a pretty bad discourse around what we do and don't cover and what it would mean to not cover something. When we choose to not cover something explicitly, it gets framed almost as censorship. Uh, and and I've gotten this pushback from colleagues. And yet when we don't cover things, which we do all the time, well, that's just how it is. And I think that we need to do some thinking about what we are incentivizing people to do. So every day in the campaign right now, Candidates are releasing you know, genuinely serious policy plans. Um, did Joe Biden's criminal justice plan or Kamala Harris's plan to decriminalize marijuana, did they get nearly as much attention as these tweets and insults Trump is throwing that have really nothing to do with his policy? And I remember back in 2016 where the other Republican candidates would be dutifully offering plans that they had policy teams working hard on and the plans, at least within their context, made some sense or were trying to be a, a sensible uh, in intervention into the debate, trying to show how they would govern. And they would get no coverage. They were just completely squeezed out by whatever Donald Trump had said. And by the way, on the left, um, Hillary Clinton's emails got more coverage than all coverage of her policy plans put together on the nightly news. We have set up a system where politicians get a lot less coverage for doing their jobs well, or at least for some definition of well, than they get for doing their jobs terribly. We've set up a system where you get coverage for acting poorly and not for acting honorably. And I think we justify it by saying, well, it's negative coverage and nobody wants negative coverage. So the incentives are correct. And I think that's what we thought a couple of years ago. That's not true. Donald Trump clearly wants negative coverage. He clearly is harnessing this and it is working. And I don't think we shouldn't do it necessarily because it is working. Um, I don't think that is the right way to make these decisions. But I do think we should look around and ask, does our conversation seem more informative? Does it seem more constructive? Does it seem that people trust the media more and have a better sense of what's going on around them? Um, and a fuller sense of what's going on around them. And I don't know. I, I think Donald Trump has broken our circuits uh, in he's managed to take some things that worked when people didn't really harness them, didn't really see them as loopholes. And he's so jammed through them <laughs> that um, it's exposed some real weaknesses in the system. Um, they're not easy ones to fix for all kinds of reasons related to who we are as human beings and the competitive pressures we're under. 
And so I don't say this in the spirit of criticism. I say it in the spirit of reflection. Um, anyway, uh, thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing, to Roger Karma, our researcher. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. Thank you.